Hey guys, this is Kabane. Today I'm going to make a, a part of my Bible Bites series, which is a series of videos which are intended to be concise, but may or may not be, on particular cool little features of the biblical text. Before we get into the subject of today's video, I just want to say that if you have not become a patron, but you enjoy these videos on a regular basis, please consider becoming a patron. Uh, the top tier provides a guaranteed hour of one-on-one -on -one discussion on an issue of your choice every month. There's some pre uh, premium content at the lower tiers, uh, but really it is simply essential for me in terms of being able to produce videos of reasonable quality and quantity. So as you can tell, we're getting back into the swing of things. We are producing videos at a higher rate. We had a great um, live stream last night. And what I want to talk about today is the idea of the ladder to heaven and the way that the ladder to heaven functions in Genesis in relation to the Gospel of John. So again, we're going to try to make this pretty short. What the ladder to heaven is, is it is a sign or symbol of the tabernacle. When Jacob sees the ladder to heaven, it can be visualized as a stepped pyramid. It is, it is an artificial holy mountain where one can step by step ascend towards God. And there are angels that are ascending and descending on it. The angels are God's ministers. God actively communicates himself to the world and receives the world back into his own heart. And at every step of that uh, two-way dynamism, there are angels participating with God as ministering spirits. But the fact that there are angels ascending and descending tells us that God wants to make himself present in the world and make the world present to him. That is why throughout Genesis, where we have this language first appearing, we hear that Abraham's seed will be like the dust of the ground and like the stars of heaven. Abraham's seed will be a family which is itself a miniature representation and summation of the heavens and the earth. That's why in Daniel chapter 12 we're told that the wise in the resurrection of the dead will shine like the stars of heaven. They have fulfilled their destiny and have become like the ground and the sky, like the heavens and the earth alike. But in the book of Genesis, when Jacob sees this vision of a ladder to heaven, he is also seeing something which is going to anticipate the most important structure in the Hebrew Bible, and that's the tabernacle, which is then developed into the temple. And when you look at the tabernacle, there are these interesting little design features. For example, you have a pole, or a couple poles, which go horizontally through the tabernacle outwards in, so from the courtyard to the Holy of Holies. This is a way of showing the vertical symbolism of the horizontal tabernacle. The further you go inwards, the further you are ascending upwards to God. Inwards is upwards. That is why priests have on their garments tassels, which are identical to one of the Hebrew words for wings. The priests are flying up to the heavens and are dwelling with God in the heaven of heavens. In the book of Psalms, we're told about birds which nest in the holy temple because birds are symbols of angels, and angels are heavenly ministers in God's sanctuary. The 24 chief priests in the Davidic liturgical system correspond to 24 angelic elders in the book of Revelation, which is why you then have 24 named or identified angels who act throughout the book and walk off stage, allowing men to be vested, crowned, and to take their place. But when you think about these poles which run horizontally through the tabernacle, the symbolism calls us back to the ladder to heaven by which God climbs down and man climbs up. Moreover, it is in this context that Jacob names the local city Luz Bethel. Jacob places his head on a stone. He then anoints that stone with oil, 
the head and his stone are being identified with each other such that the anointing of the stone symbolizes the anointing of his head, Jacob, as a human being, walks upright and thus is himself a conduit by which heaven descends to earth. Jacob and his family is the seed through which God is going to proclaim his name to the ends of the earth. And it is from the person of Jacob that you have the priestly nation who will administer the rituals and the liturgy of the sanctuary. It is from the line of Jacob that you have the Levitical orchestra, who in the structure of the genealogies of Chronicles are the uh, peak of all creation. The whole human family was created so that God might make musicians. That is why musicians are mentioned in the, uh, I believe it is the last or second to last generation of the dynasty of Cain. As man matures, man develops according to a certain pattern. An egg is always going to change. The question is, when it changes, will that change be for good or for ill? The song that is written at the end of Genesis 4 is a song. There are instruments, but it is celebrating and commemorating evil instead of good. Well, when Jacob names Luz Bethel, which means house of God, another way we know we're talking about the sanctuary, the place where God dwells with his people, Bethel, we meet later in the Bible, is one of the places where the tabernacle will dwell in the period of the judges. People read Deuteronomy, they think that the place which the Lord your God shall choose refers to Jerusalem. No, it refers, there's a reason it's not named. It's not named, not because, you know, it's the historical critic who's trying to disguise him, or the, 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 the uh, uh, JEDP source who's trying to disguise his forging hand. It is rather because the location of the central sanctuary moves around. The tabernacle dwells at Shiloh, it dwells at Bethel. Ultimately, the central sanctuary comes to Jerusalem in the days of King Solomon. But it moves around. And Jacob names Luz Bethel, the house of God, upon seeing this vision of the ladder to heaven. Now, Jacob is going to undergo a spiritual and physical journey in his history with Laban. Jacob is persecuted by Laban. Laban changes his wages constantly. When Jacob tries to flee, Laban chases him to a river. We have a echo, a anticipation of what is going to happen when Israel is oppressed by Egypt. Egypt is going to enslave them for no wages. Pharaoh is going to pursue them to the Red Sea. But ultimately, Israel will come through the sea and possess their inheritance. Notably, when Israel journeys through the Red Sea and comes to the Holy Mountain, they are led by the glory cloud of God. This is the dwelling of God, which centers itself in the tabernacle. And that is what is going on in the story of the ladder to heaven. But I want to point out to you that when Jacob returns from his sojourn with Laban, when he returns to the land of his inheritance, we are told that he came to a place called Sukkoth, or Cloud. Jacob has begun in Genesis 27-28 at the bottom of the ladder to heaven, but through his suffering, through his being persecuted, he ascends step by step that ladder to heaven and is exalted so that his very pattern of life is reshaped and restructured after the pattern of God's life. God says in the scriptures, walk before me and be perfect. And what is the sign of Jacob's ultimate victory? What is the sign that he has wrestled with God and prevailed? That God, by wrestling with him, has made him strong? That's what fathers do. They wrestle their children to make them strong. God has shaped Jacob through his persecution, through his suffering, and has made him strong. And the sign is that his mode of walking changes. He now walks with a circumcised hip. And the sock meat on the socket of the thigh is now consecrated. It is holy meat. It belongs to the inner presence of God. And this happens when Jacob is ascended to Sukkoth, to cloud. He's ascended above the stars of heaven. And because he has ascended above the stars, he can now sow the world with new life. His son, Joseph, descends into a well and is brought up again 
And that blood, which marks Joseph's descent and ascent, sprinkles Egypt and produces a great harvest, such that it is not like at the beginning of Genesis, where there are seeds from every plant in the earth which are stored on the ark. No, a famine strikes the whole face of the earth just as a flood it struck the whole face of the earth. But this time there is a harvest and not just the seeds. It is all nations and not just eight people, one single family. There is similarity and there is also distinction. The beginning there's a judgment by water, the end there's a judgment by heat, fire, the famine. This is a judgment by fire anticipating the last and final judgment. Another interesting point which we can note in relation to Jacob's journey up the ladder to heaven is the significance of goats in Jacob's story. We see when Jacob is engaging with Laban that there is a narrative about two kinds of goat. There is a dark speckled goat and then there is a white fleeced goat. Now I don't want to get into the specifics of why it is the way that it is. There is a lot of stuff to say there, but what I want to call your attention to is the similarity that this has with the Day of Atonement, where you have two goats, one for the Lord and one for Azazel, or destruction. One is marked to ascend into the presence of God. The other is marked to be sent into the wilderness, into permanent exile. So this twofold theme is already being developed here in the life of Jacob. Moreover, in the Day of Atonement, where we have these two goats, the high priest himself ascends up to the presence of God twice. And as he ascends up to the presence of God, once for himself, once for the nation, he carries a censer which is producing a cloud of incense around him. He ascends on a cloud into the throne room and presence of God and sprinkles the world clean. Well, likewise, Jacob comes to a place which is called Cloud, and his Joseph, and his son Joseph, is the one who sprinkles the world clean by his blood. Now, in case you think that's just a fancy allegorization which is too clever for its own good, I can provide a much more detailed argument at some other point, um, but the theme of rain from heaven, of Joseph being that rain from heaven, of the blood of Joseph corresponding to that rain from heaven, of there being a harvest, not just seeds, which are produced by that rain from heaven. Every one of these points can be given a robust and conclusive, in my view, defense. So it is not just an arbitrary allegorization. This stuff is really there in the biblical text because there really is one divine author who oversaw the entirety of biblical history and thus saw the entire oversaw the entirety of the Bible. We see that when Jacob comes back from his sojourn, we're told that the sun rose upon him. Well, what are we told in the book of Malachi? In the book of Malachi, it begins with the struggle of Jacob and Esau, Israel and Edom. And then we're told Malachi 1.11, the sun, or the nations, will worship the God of Israel with a pure tribute from the rising of the sun to its setting. At the end of the book, we're told the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and Israel will go and tread down the nations. That language of treading down, it means they possess the nations. The nations become their inheritance. It is another way or another perspective on the conversion of the nations. The nations have the same king as Israel because Israel is a subject of the king, and they, on his behalf, extend his dominion. Well, moreover, we have the theme of the harvest going on in the book of Malachi. We've just talked about the harvest in the story of Genesis, how Joseph sows the world, or Jacob sows the world with the blood of his son, and thus produces a great harvest of grain. Joseph encounters a cupbearer and a baker. Bread and wine are encountered. Joseph feeds the world with bread, the bread of life. Well, what is a pure tribute, a mincha, in the book of Malachi? Tribute offering is a offering of, what else? Bread and wine. Leviticus 2 mentions the bread, and then when Israel comes into the promised land, they use the abundant grapes to produce rich sacramental wine, which is placed on God's altar. But... 
they are not permitted to drink from that wine until the new covenant where Jesus says, drink of this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. So you have a harvest in Genesis after Jacob ascends and the sun rises on him. In Malachi, you have a harvest. You have a tribute of bread and wine, sacramental bread and wine. Read Genesis. I think it's chapter 45. You have a feast of Jacob's family. Well, this is the feast produced by the great harvest, which emerged because of Joseph's own persecution. It is by his blood that a harvest is produced, and that harvest corresponds to the nations of the world. The feast of ingathering is the harvest of the nations. It's the ingathering of the harvest agriculturally. But this is the feast in Israel's calendar where they sacrifice 70 bulls. 70 is the number of the world's nations. The world in its existence was perpetuated through the sanctuary because Israel made intercession both for themselves and for the nations of the world. 70 bulls, 70 nations. In gathering of the harvest, well, a great harvest of seven years in the story of Genesis. And what do you know? Joseph is said to be father to Pharaoh. When we read about a harvest, it is a harvest which is produced from new seed. Seed grows, it expands, it multiplies, it branches out, it produces a great harvest. The language of offspring is already connected with the language of agriculture. So by the same token, Abraham, through Jacob and Joseph, acquires a whole multitude of new children in the story of Genesis at the end of the book because the harvest of bread underscores the deeper and more valuable harvest of the nations of the world who come to hear the word of Joseph and receive bread from his hands. Pharaoh says that in Joseph there is the spirit of the Holy God. Pharaoh was a pious man. He's in heaven. Joseph marries the daughter of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is, is said to be the son of Joseph. Joseph is father to Pharaoh. Abraham is to be the father of many nations. That's the context where we're told that Abraham's seed will be the dust of the ground and the stars of heaven. Well, here we are, my friends. The seed of Joseph's blood goes into the earth and produces a great harvest so that all the nations come to know the God of Israel. The sun which rises does not rise to scorch the nations to death rises with healing in its wings so that that which was once a deadly famine rather becomes the instrument by which God shines his light on all the nations of the world and this occurs precisely because Jacob has ascended through suffering he has gone through the experiences that he has gone through and has produced a son and those life experiences the good and the bad have shaped his son and the son so being shaped now goes to Egypt, even though he is persecuted, goes to Egypt and God sees to it that he rises to rule the nations. And as Isaiah says about the Messiah, in him shall the nations hope. That's why in the Gospel of Luke we're told uh, that uh, Jesus is called the son of Joseph. Is this not the son of Joseph? There's a double meaning to this text here. He's, of course, the adopted son of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And he is also the Messiah, the son of Joseph, the one who illumines the nations. Because in the Gospel of Luke, he is identified as the son of Joseph right after he talks about the ministry the Old Testament prophets made to the nations. Go back to the theme of the Day of Atonement now. Day of Atonement, the high priest ascends on a cloud just as Jacob has ascended to Sukkoth, which is cloud. And what does he do? He sprinkles the world clean. The tabernacle is a representation of the world. When the high priest sprinkles the world, and what does he sprinkle it with, by the way? Blood. Blood. So Joseph's blood, his bloody garment here, corresponds symbolically to that. Actually, you look at Leviticus 1, you go through the distinct ascension offerings, it matches blow for blow the specific, distinct patriarchal narratives of Genesis. And the main ascension offering matches the narrative of the Exodus and the covenant. But what are we told in Isaiah? We are told that the servant of the Lord, who was a high priestly figure, he will sprinkle many nations. The high priest descends on a cloud and sprinkles the world by blood. And in Isaiah, we're told that in the age of the Messiah, because the servant is the Messiah, 
We know that because Isaiah 55 says that his mission fulfills the covenant God made to David. The servant is the son of David who fulfills David's covenant and brings everyone into the inheritance of David's family. That's why in Isaiah 54 to 55, we hear about servants in the plural, not just a singular servant. The singular servant was Israel, and Israel is whittled down to one man, the Messiah, the son of David, and the son of David expands out to incorporate uh, all Israel and the nations alike. That's why Isaiah 6 we see that God takes a tree, he whittles it down to a stump, and then he says he's going to whittle it down even more. But all of this rolls together, and it's based on this narrative we read in the book of Genesis, what seemed to be straightforward historical narrative, perhaps superstitious uh, historical narrative. That sort of thing doesn't happen, one might think. There is an immense depth undergirding this historical narrative. So it has to do with the conversion of the nation. It has to do with the messianic age, the suffering servant. It has to do with the day of atonement, the tabernacle, the high priest. Everything in scripture isn't everything else. This is what scripture interprets. Scripture really means. Every detail interprets every other detail. And it's tough, but it is, it's very beautiful. Well, let's take it a bit more specific. Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man, the Son of Adam, ascends on the clouds of heaven to the throne of God to receive a kingdom. We're told that this is a sign that the saints of the Most High are to receive a kingdom. How is it the saints of the Most High if the Son of Man is Jesus? This is quite straightforward. The Son of Man, the high priest, the high priest wears jewels that are in the Garden of Eden. The high priest is spoken of as the summation of the entire human family. If Israel is a miniature humanity, well, the high priest is a miniature Israel, bearing 12 stones on his heart, his breastplate, and on his shoulder, bearing them into the tabernacle uh, of God. That the Son of Man ascends on the clouds of heaven shows us that we're dealing with the incense cloud of Leviticus chapter 16. Moreover, the cosmic scope indicates that we're dealing with the fundamental question of Leviticus 16, which is the purification of all creation. Daniel 7 begins with a wind blowing over the waters. Well, the Spirit blows over the waters in Genesis 1-2. And Daniel looks seven times, and those seven lookings correspond very precisely with the seven creation days. I've talked about that on my blog. Jesus is the Son of Man, and the Church is the Son of Man, because we are incorporated into Jesus. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. We are the children of Adam in Christ, the true children of Adam, who are the heirs of the household, because he is the Son of Adam, the one whom Adam was meant to father. And in the Gospel of John, this is developed in a rich and detailed way incorporating all of these themes we have just looked at here. I don't have time to go into every single one of them, but I do want to just, before we get to the main subject of what I do want to cash out in John, just point out the connections to the harvest theme in the Gospel of John. Think about how the Gospel ends with Jesus sitting on the shore after his resurrection, reinstating Peter as the chief of the apostles, the foremost of the apostles. This isn't a video about the papacy. If you want to talk about that, <laughs> go watch a video on the papacy. Um, but he, as foremost of the apostles, he's restored when Jesus says, feed my sheep. What is, he, what is he to feed the sheep with? Well, what is Jesus feeding him with? He is feeding him with bread and fish. That bread and fish, of course, corresponds to the feeding of the 5,000, which was likewise bread and fish. But here, at the post-resurrection appearance, Jesus says to his apostles, take and eat. That is language only elsewhere used in reference to the Eucharist. It is not typical language, even as it is short. Take and eat, Jesus says. He gives them food, which has been cooked over a charcoal fire, just as the altar is burning with the presence of God. The presence of God, which uh, unites divided pieces of the animals into one single cloud of smoke. Peter has chosen his community. He denied Jesus at a charcoal fire, the only other charcoal fire in the Gospel of John. He did so because he was embarrassed. He wanted to be accepted by those who asked him to deny Jesus. Now he decides that it is Jesus' opinion which really matters. It is only Jesus' opinion which matters here in the Gospel of John. 
the theme of the harvest of bread is echoed several other times throughout John. Think about what Jesus says. The fields are white and ripe for harvest. Would that there were enough laborers to reap. The apostles are those laborers, which is why Peter's reinstatement and the ordination of the apostles in John 20 when Jesus breathes the Spirit on them. It's why it's such an important point. And you have, of course, the Eucharist itself. Whoever does not eat my flesh and drink my blood has no life in him. That is what it's all pointing to. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. It was my Father who gave you the real bread. For the bread from heaven is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. That is what everything is pointing towards. Just as Joseph's blood gave birth to a harvest of the nations, so Jesus' blood gives birth to an even greater harvest. He says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I shall draw all men to myself. Israel and the nations alike. Let's focus in on the terminology of the latter, and let's use that to look at these high priestly themes in John. First, the latter. In John chapter 1, Jesus says to Nathanael, while he is at a fig tree representing Israel, are you amazed that I've said you are under the fig tree? He saw him there even though Jesus wasn't visibly or physically present, anticipating what Peter says at the end of the gospel, Lord, you know everything. It's, you can almost miss it, but this is a striking claim. Lord, you know everything. You will see, Jesus says to Nathaniel, angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, the Son of Adam. Well, two things here. First of all, Son of Man, that's Daniel 7. Ezekiel also refers extensively to the Son of Man. Ezekiel and Daniel are kind of twin books, and Ezekiel himself is a Son of Man figure. He lives under certain high priestly ritual laws. When his wife dies, he is not permitted to ritually mourn her. Now, that doesn't mean grieve, but there are certain ritual processes which the high priest wasn't permitted to undergo. The fact that Ezekiel lives by those prohibitions tells us that he's living under a high priestly law, and that is explained by the Spirit entering into him, dwelling in him, lifting him up, and calling him Son of Man, Son of Adam. The lifting up of Ezekiel from the ground anticipates Ezekiel 37, where the Spirit of God goes into the dry bones and lifts them up from the earth as well. But the key point here is that Son of Man is a high priestly term in both Daniel 7 and Ezekiel 1 and following. And angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, that's a quotation in terms of the ascent and descent of the angels in the book of Genesis. Angels are ascending and descending on this ladder which Jacob sees going to heaven. Remember the central role that wells play in the patriarchal narratives, and specifically in the story of Jacob. In Genesis 28, when Jacob first arrives in Laban's land, he arrives at a well. And then at the end of this process, he is ascended from that well upwards so that he is at Sukkoth, cloud. This is the narrative theme of the Gospel of John. We read about a ladder to heaven in John chapter 1. Then in John chapter 4, Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at that very same well. Remember how Jacob meets his wife at this well? Well, Jesus discusses marriage with this Samaritan woman. He says, you have had five husbands, and the man you are with now is not your husband. Jesus is the seventh, the sabbatical bridegroom who takes Israel as his bride and purifies her and incorporates the nations into that organism, into that body, which is Israel. One garment of Israel and the nations alike clothes Jesus as the great high priest. Now the Samaritan woman says, you are not greater than Jacob, are you? By implication, though, Jesus is indeed greater than Jacob. And thus throughout the Gospel of John, like Jacob, Jesus will be unjustly persecuted and accused by his brothers according to the flesh. Ultimately, he will be lifted up from the earth on the cross. And he will say at the end of the gospel, I have not yet ascended to my father. 
the ascension of Jesus is narrated in the book of Revelation. So we have a mention of the ladder to heaven. We have a mention of the ladder to heaven in the context of using a high priestly title for Jesus, the son of man or son of Adam. Then we have a narrative which identifies the same well that we read about in the book of Genesis. The story of Jacob is explicitly made reference to. And then Jesus is lifted up. That's a major theme throughout the text. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Jesus is lifted up in his exaltation, in the cross, the grave, the third day resurrection, the ascension into heaven, and the final and glorious coming. Jesus is lifted up. And he's lifted up the same way that Jacob was, by unjust persecution. Just as God wrestled Jacob and brought him to maturity, so also does the Father wrestle Jesus. And because Jesus is the perfect Son, the divine Son who appropriates human nature to himself, he responds perfectly to every one of his Father's moves, so that God's purpose in realizing human nature in its complete glory is accomplished. He grew in wisdom and stature. As wise as a person can be at 12 years old, given the nature of what it means to live in a 12-year-old body, Jesus was that wise. As wise as it is possible to be at 15 years old, given the fact that the body is objectively developed at that point in time, Jesus is that wise. He is perfect at every stage of his life because of his relation with the Father, because the Father wrestles him, makes him strong, because, as Hebrews says, he learns obedience from his Father. But he doesn't learn it through having to taste the bitter fruit of disobedience. Rather, at every moment, according to his humanity, he brings us into communion with the sweetness of the fruit of the tree of life imbued with the life of God. And so he is lifted up from the earth. And just as in the book of Genesis, we have met uh, Jacob at Sukkoth, at the cloud, just as the sun rose upon him as he returned to the land, so it is on the first day of the week, at very early in the morning, that Jesus is resurrected from the grave. And he says to Mary Magdalene, I have not yet ascended to my father. And in Revelation 4 to 5, Jesus ascends above the sea of crystal, which is the firmament of Genesis chapter 1. The firmament is the boundary of the material cosmos, whether you take that symbolically or concretely in one way or another. The point right now is that the ascending above the firmament means a, he is going where no man has gone before, into the throne room of God as a human being. The angels were amazed when they beheld thee counted among the dead, and then he was counted among those who lived as no man had ever lived before. And he thus brings mankind with him. Where I go, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am you may be also, is what Jesus says. He has ascended the ladder to heaven, the very same ladder which Jacob ascended. He has ascended it as high priest, because in Revelation 4 to 5, remember we heard about the Son of Man in John chapter 1, Revelation 4 to 5, we are told that uh, the high priest is a lamb, and lambs and goats are very closely connected in the Bible. So remember how we talked about the importance of goats in everything that we're talking about? Well, Jesus ascends as a lamb with seven eyes. Seven eyes, that refers to the seven engravings on the crown of the high priest spelling out the Hebrew letters holy to the Lord with the tetragrammaton. Now in Zechariah chapter 3 we are given a vision of Joshua, Yehoshua, Jesus the high priest. Joshua is the same name as Jesus. Jesus the high priest who was a sign of my servant the branch. Jeremiah 23, the branch is King Messiah. Isaiah 11, a branch from the root of Jesse will bear fruit. This is the Messiah. And who is a sign of the coming Messiah? It is a person named Jesus, a person who is a high priest, who nevertheless wears a crown and is a priest who sits upon the royal throne. We see, in fact, there is one priestly king who is sitting upon the one throne by looking at both Zechariah 3 and Zechariah 6, the crown of silver and gold is the wealth of silver and gold which is gathered from the nations when the nations are converted and consecrate their wealth to God. Compare Isaiah chapter 60, which is echoed in Matthew chapter 2. The Magi bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh, just as 
gold and incenses are brought to the holy mountain where God dwells in Isaiah 60. And just as the Magi in that context fall down and worship Jesus, so much stuff that we could go into. I just want to give you a sense of how many paths there are to go down. And every one of these paths is unimaginably rich. We're just picking one of them, picking one or two paths. You can go down any path, every step of the way. There is, There are multiple branches you can walk on along, and every one of those branches is splendid and beautiful, deeply elegant. So that's what's been happening in John and Revelation. Jesus, as the new Jacob, the one who is greater than Jacob, ascends the ladder to heaven and is lifted up and ascends above the clouds as high priest. He's above the sea of crystal. And then remember what happens. In Genesis, Jacob sprinkles the world with the blood of his son, Joseph. Well, in the book of Revelation, Jesus sprinkles the world with the blood of his church as it is linked to his own blood. That is why we have the theme of the Spirit is in Christ bearing witness in his passion, in his being persecuted, and ultimately in his crucifixion. The Spirit bears witness, and that is the word which comes into English as martyr. And throughout Revelation, you have the saints who are harvested as martyrs. Remember Daniel 7. The Son of Man ascends to the throne of God. It is a sign of the saints of the Most High receiving the kingdom, because the high priest, the true Son of Man, ascends on a cloud of incense, as the Son of Man ascends on a cloud. He ascends twice, once for himself, once for the nations. So by that very token, uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, Messianic Son of Man ascends once in his own person. Jesus ascends to receive dominion over all things in heaven and on earth, and then he brings the saints up with him the saints possess the kingdom of the most high many directions we can follow here well revelation is filled with echoes of the day of atonement for example the woman who rides the beast in revelation chapter 17 it says that she goes to destruction well that is a reference to the goat the beast, the goat is a kind of beast, who goes to Azazel in Leviticus, which means go to destruction, where the other goat goes to the Lord. Well, that's Jesus, the Lamb of God, who goes to the Lord, who ascends above the Sea of Crystal, where Jerusalem goes to destruction. Because the Jerusalem of this period is one which has defined itself in opposition to Jesus. The whole blood of all of the martyrs of the Old Testament falls upon Jesus who was in the likeness of sinful flesh and died for sin so that he might condemn sin in the flesh, and it falls upon Jerusalem, Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse. You are either exalted, glorified, or destroyed in judgment. Another one of these Day of Atonement themes that we read about in the book of Revelation is uh, where we have the seven bowls. Well, throughout the Day of Atonement, the high priest sprinkles blood on the various furniture of the tabernacle purifying it and he sprinkles it whenever he sprinkles it it's a sevenfold sprinkling because he is renewing that which is endowed to the creation in creation week which is seven days as you can tell by the word week well the seven bowls can also be seen as seven chalices how are they filled they are filled with the blood of the saints we are told God treads out the wine, which becomes the wine of his wrath. And he harvests the saints as the witnesses of God. In Revelation, I think it's Revelation chapter 14, either 14 or 15. Jesus has sprinkled the world with his blood and with the blood of his saints and has brought the world from glory to glory. Moreover, just as the world was sprinkled with the blood of Joseph, just as fire was revealed on the earth, just as the heat of famine was revealed on the earth, producing harvest in one part and destruction in another, so also do we find that Jesus casts fire on the earth in Revelation chapter 8. Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, I came to cast fire on the earth, would that it were already kindled. 
Well, in Revelation 8, we have a figure who's called another angel. I won't prove this now. I've talked about it in other videos, but this is Jesus acting in his office as angel of the Lord, as head of the old covenant, which was a covenant administered by angels. Uh, he casts fire on the earth, and the language that is then used echoes very closely the language of the Sinai covenant. Pentecost is when the law is written on the hearts of God's children. The Pentecost of the Old Covenant, the Feast of Weeks, celebrates the descent of the glory of God and the gift of the law on Sinai. So you have peals of thunder and lightning and so forth when he sends the Spirit on the earth, just as the same happened when he sent the Torah on the earth in the story of Exodus uh, chapter 19. And finally, the story stretches forth to reach Revelation 20 and 21. The saints are brought up to be with Jesus. The saints are those who share in the first resurrection. Even Christian death is not true death. Jesus says, those who live and believe in me will never die. This is the first resurrection. As the second death is the damnation of the wicked, so even their resurrection is a death, the reverse is also true. The death of the Christian is a resurrection. They are given a new vestal garment. They're given a crown, the very crowns with the angels cast before the throne of God. And they rule as priests and kings for a thousand years for the period which is symbolically denoted as the millennium in Revelation. And then you have the final resurrection of the dead. We're told that uh, the grave gave up its dead, Sheol. And the sea gave up its dead. That's the heavenly sea. That is where those who shared in the first resurrection were dwelling. And then there's no more sea, because we're talking about the heavenly sea of crystal. And the firmament and created in the second day was a temporary bridal veil, which is removed when God becomes all in all through Jesus Christ. There's no need for any separation anymore, because the distinction between the heaven of heavens and the earth is not denoted by a separation, but by and interpenetration. And so the high priestly son of man, Jesus the Messiah, has ascended throughout the Gospel of John up the ladder to heaven, ladder to heaven John 1, at the well of Jacob John chapter 4, angels ascending and descending Genesis and John 1, Jesus is lifted up from the earth uh, to ascend above the clouds. Revelation 4 to 5 mentions the ascension, John chapter 20. Uh, he ascends as high priest above the clouds. He has gone up the ladder to heaven, purifying it. And then he brings the saints up with him. Just as Jacob, having ascended from the well to Sukkoth, he's ascended the ladder to heaven by suffering. He then brings the world with him through the trial of losing his son, who then replicates the experience of Jacob's suffering and brings redemption and healing to the nations of the world. And it's why at the end of Revelation, the horses go out to conquer the world in the name of Jesus. The four horsemen correspond to the four rivers which flow out from the temple, matching the four rivers going out from Eden, what the psalmist calls the river of your delights. They are four chariots because at the in the outside of Solomon's temple, you have these holy water stands, which have three parts. The top part matches the holy of holies, meaning this is symbolic of the spring of the water of life in the inner sanctuary of the temple or the holy of holies in the tabernacle. There are five on one side and five on the other, signifying the ladder to heaven extending out from the temple, in from inside, which is the holy of holies, out but because there are three stories in these ladders to heaven, in these water stands, it doesn't lose any of its intense sanctity. But at the bottom of these water stands, there are chariot wheels because they symbolize God riding his chariot out from the inner sanctuary to take his glory to the ends of the earth. That is why Zechariah 6, we're told that God will set his spirit at rest in the north country, that is, he will conquer Babylon, spirit requires rest when conquest is made. The book of Joshua says that. Uh, and it is four horsemen who ride the chariot of God's presence out to the end of the earth, which is why Zechariah 14 retells the story from a different perspective. We're told that a river of life goes 
in all directions. From north, I believe, let me just double check this. From north to south in Zechariah 6, from east to west in Zechariah 14. And this is the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember we talked about the harvest of the nations earlier? Well, here it is. This is the harvest of the nations, the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is signified in this prophetic vision of the uh, Messianic age. So, conquest is sanctification. Priesthood, consecration, is an aspect of a symbolic grammar which can also be expressed in military terms. Jesus writes, conquering is to conquer. But the implement of war is what? A sword. Well, what's the instrument of sacrifice? A blade. War involves fire. You burn the city. Sacrifice involves fire. You burn the sacrifice. Book of Joshua, the smoke of the destroyed cities ascends up to heaven. The ascension offering, Leviticus 1, the smoke of the ascension ascends up to God. Genesis chapter 9, the smoke of the ascent, or Genesis 8 rather, the smoke of the ascension offering is smelled by God, and God remembers his covenant. N remember, no, note how when we smell things, it jolts our memory. Smelling is associated with memory in the structure of the human being. Well, it's the same thing in biblical symbolism, because the one who wrote the Bible also invented the human being. So that's the grand story of the book of Revelation in light of the ladder to heaven. Let me go through one last thing, and I promise I will do this quickly. Remember how the ladder to heaven matches the poles which are run through the horizontal structure of the tabernacle because it's meant to symbolize the fact that you could, in a way, turn it upwards so that the poles are symbolically holding up the tabernacle so that what is the innermost part of it, the Holy of Holies, is symbolically the uppermost part of it. It corresponds to the heaven of heavens, the highest portion of the tabernacle system, and the priests, their tassels are called wings, they fly, the smoke ascends, it ascends, but it ascending upwards and inwards at the same time you can only understand this in terms of the uh, symbolic grammar well the gospel of john as the narrative as the narrative of jesus's ascent as son of man as high priest through the sanctuary walks through each piece of tabernacle furniture from the outside in We'll just go thematically. There's a lot more that could be said, but I won't go into immense detail on it. Uh, John chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. This refers to the sacrificial altar, which John bears witness to. Uh, as you move inwards, you have the uh, water basin, which separates the holy place from the courtyard and this corresponds to the discussion of being born of water and the spirit which is immediately followed by a narrative of the baptisms of john and jesus one of the many ways we know that they are in fact speaking about baptism well as you move inward from the courtyard to the holy place we first pass through the well which the Samaritan woman is drawing, continuing the theme about water and the water basin that was um, echoed in John chapter 3. Well, then you move through John 6, which is about the feast of the flesh and blood of Christ, the body and blood of Christ, bread and wine. Well, that corresponds to the bread of the presence, which is placed on the table in the tabernacle, the table of showbread or the table of face bread. We also have in John 7 to 8 discussions of light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He says this during a ritual which accentuates the lights of the uh, tabernacle. And there is an extended section focusing on the theme of light. Jesus talks about those who are blind. Jesus talks about those who are sons of light. Jesus calls Lazarus out from the tomb, uh, inviting him to awake from night to day. Uh, um, and then we move to the procedure from the holy place into the inner sanctuary. At the altar of incense... Jesus prays his high priestly prayer. Having celebrated his liturgical service in the holy place, 
having actually celebrated the Eucharist, which is not described in the Gospel of John, because John expects us to know the synoptics, well, Jesus' prayer, let my prayer rise and I set his incense, Jesus' prayer brings him into the presence of God, and that is when Jesus is crucified. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. And Jesus enters into the presence of God. He is glorified in his crucifixion. And what do you know? When he comes out of the tomb, the resurrection, we are told that there are two angels on either side of his burial stone. Well, those are the two cherubim on either side of the Ark of the Covenant. Jesus is the God of Israel as well as the high priest who ministers to the God of Israel. So, I hope you enjoyed this kind of whirlwind tour through the theme of the ladder to heaven in Scripture. Um, I know we didn't mention what I think a lot of people expected me to mention when we talk about the ladder of heaven, which is the mother of God, because the mother of God is the one through whom Jesus comes and makes himself present to earth. Um, I may talk about that in another video based on this video, but every aspect of our Marian doctrine, we must remember, exists as an extension of our Christology. Mariology is a revelation of Christology. Mariology shows what Christology does for us. So I wanted to look at the inner biblical logic of the ladder to heaven, the tabernacle, and so on before we get to the specifically Marian aspects of this theology. And there are specifically Marian aspects. Throughout the Gospel of John, you have six different women who are called woman by Jesus, and every one of them has a relationship to the major symbolic archetypal women of the Old Testament. Among them is the Virgin Mary. The Virgin Mary is appointed the mother of the beloved disciple. Well, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he is a symbol of all Christians. He dwells at the side of Jesus, just as Jesus dwells at the side of the Father. He signifies all Christians dwelling in the side of Jesus. Thereby, when Jesus says, Behold your mother, he is thus speaking to us all. Moreover, the language echoes Pilate's, Behold the man. Behold the man is Jesus the last Adam. Behold your mother. This is Mary as the new Eve. Mary makes intercession and brings Jesus to uh, bring out miraculous wine. The wedding at Cana, well, it is at the gift of Mary to the beloved disciple as mother that we see another gift of wine which flows out with water from the side of Jesus. There we have bridal themes, of course. Mary's made from the, or Eve is made from the side of Adam. You have uh, life-giving water and blood coming from the side of Jesus. It's hard to miss this sort of stuff. And, of course, anything that talks about the temple, the tabernacle, the sanctuary uh, is going to be archetypal, arch archetypally feminine in character um, because God built Eve out of Adam's side just as Cain built a city for his son Enoch so you know we could just keep going and going but uh, I said at the beginning of the video it's meant to be short but who knows and I really didn't mean it to be short but you know it just never happened so I hope you enjoyed it um, I, I particularly enjoyed making today's video so um, I will see you soon